Good morning, Journey. We are in week four of this series that we're calling Co-Journers, where we as a community, we've been unpacking this idea that that bumper video just talked about, this idea that we come alongside people wherever they're at in their spiritual journey to help them come to faith in Christ. And something that I've been really excited about, about this particular series, is we've tried to be really intentional about giving you some very practical ways to do that after you leave here, some things that you can actually apply in your life. And it's been fun for us because we get texts back about things that people are praying about and trying and, and ways that they're being successful. And I wanted to share with you um, an email that I got a couple weeks ago after one of our weekend worship experiences. Hello, I attend Journey every week. I wanted to talk to you after the service today, but you seem pretty busy, so I didn't get a chance. Your message was so impactful for me today that it brought me to tears. Every week I come to church, the sermon will give me a feeling of motivation to reach out to people around me. I walk out of church thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Can't you relate to that? I often feel that very same thing myself. But throughout the week, the feeling fades. I'm a senior at Bozeman High, so while I try to hold on to that little flame of fire in me to talk to people at school about Jesus, I choke and I just can't find the opportunity. I never know how to become that Christian influence for someone. You're totally right. It is very difficult to start that awkward conversation with someone, but it makes me very selfish towards my own needs. So while I sat there this morning, taking in all that information and instructions you were dishing out, I like that. I'm dishing out stuff. That's what I do here on the weekend. I was psyching myself up for the next time I approached an opportunity. I was telling myself, you can do this. Whenever it happens, you'll be ready. I know you will. See, I was thinking that I had the remainder of the weekend to prepare for the big moment. God has always had other plans in store for me. Not even an hour after church had ended, I received a text message from a really close friend of mine in Maryland. She was telling me that she feels that she doesn't feel very content with herself. She was describing that she feels like something is missing. She was very vague on how she felt, so I wasn't sure what she needed advice with. So I sat there for a minute, I took a deep breath, and then took a risky shot in the dark. I looked over the cheat sheet of notes from church, and I asked her, where are you spiritually? God may be giving you these feelings so that you can find him and be made whole again. I was a nervous wreck just waiting for a response. To my surprise, she replied, you're right. I know that I'm not where I need to be spiritually at all. My heart skipped a beat and I stopped everything I was doing. This was it, an opportunity. I was able to talk openly with her about my faith. She was asking me questions that I somehow knew the answers to. I took a break from our conversation and I cried to God and thanked him for giving me the right words to say at the right time to her. God used me and it felt absolutely amazing. Since I trusted God to handle the situation, when I took that leap of faith, everything went great. I realized that reaching out to others about our spirituality is probably like any other new thing that we try. For example, the very first time we ever give a speech in front of a class, it's a very scary feeling. We're terrified. However, the more speeches we give, the more practice we have, it just gets a little easier every time. I feel like it'll be that way with spiritual conversations with others in the future. So I want to thank you so much for the guidance this morning. Your message prepared me for a new change in my life. I will definitely be keeping my antennas up from now on. I know this was long, so thank you so much for reading this. Ha ha. I like the ha ha. 
God bless you and your family. Sincerely, an 18-year-old co-journer. You know, not every time that we step out in faith to be used by God does the story end like that where there's a breakthrough with someone. But I can guarantee you, friends, that if this becomes the intentional part of our life, that we're regularly making ourselves available to be used by God, he will show up in powerful ways and it will get easier over time. And that's our heart in this series. It's not necessarily that we would do things that would make our church bigger, but that we would do things that would make each of us as individuals make our faith grow bigger because we're gonna see God at work in the lives of people around us and using in that and it's gonna make our faith blow up. As we've been talking about this idea of co-journers, Kind of the fundamental principle is, is that everybody is on a spiritual journey in some way in their life. And depending on where a person is at on their spiritual journey, we play different roles in their life. And we've showed you this before, but I want to recap just kind of the overview of what we're talking about. The first role that we would play in a person's life is the explorer role. We just need to find out where a person is at on their spiritual journey. If we're going to be effective at helping them get from where they're at to a relationship with Jesus, we first need to understand where are they at on that spiritual journey? The second role we play is that of the guide. Once we figure out where they're at, we use telling of stories, God's story and our story, to help people move to a relationship with Christ. But as most of us know, that that path to Christ is not always uh, a straight line. There are sometimes obstacles that we need to overcome in people's lives, barriers to faith that we need to help them get over. And that's the bridge builder role that Brian's going to be talking about next week. And the last role that we would talk about is the mentor role. We won't talk about it in this series, but the idea is that the mentor role is once a person comes to faith in Christ, that's great. But our role then is to come alongside them and help them become a disciple and learn how to make disciples of other people. That's the big picture of what we're talking about with co-journers. Uh, a while back, I was up late studying, working on a seminary project that was... I was way behind, very involved, and so I knew that it was going to take me late into the night. And as it was, it was probably 10 or 10, 15, there was a, a, my doorbell rang. And when you're a father of small kids, you just, you don't like late night phone calls. You don't like the doorbell ringing late because you just think something's gone wrong with one of my kids or some, there's something bad has happened. Well, I get to the door and there's nobody there. So I'm like, aha, ding dong ditchers at my house. Well, then I go back to work. Pretty soon, another ring. Ha, 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 ding, dong, ditchers. Another ring, another ring. So I'm starting to think to myself, ring my doorbell one more time. <laughs> so I decided I'm gonna have a little fun with this. These kids are gonna make my day if they wanna ring my doorbell again. So I go to my closet and I get out my shoes, my running shoes. And I decide I'm gonna go after them if the doorbell rings again. But I'm just thinking, it's really late by this time. They're probably done. As I was sitting there doing my work, ding dong, and my animal instincts just exploded. I ran across the living room, jumped over the coffee table, out the entryway of our house, off of the porch, and into the darkness. And now here's my disclaimer about this whole thing, this don't try this at home idea. Imagine what it's like when you've just been spending the last several hours in these bright lights in your kitchen with a bright light of a computer screen, and now suddenly you're running into complete darkness. You cannot see a thing. But I didn't need to see anything because what I heard out in the darkness was, oh no! 
Actually, I don't think they said, oh no, but it was something along those lines. But it gave their position away. So I just started running as fast as I could toward them. Well, as my eyes started to adjust, I began to see these shapes that were running away from me. And as I'm running, I'm just like seeing things just kind of zip by me, like trees and fences and things like that. And your mind starts to wonder like, what if I fall in a hole or what if I hit one of those trees? But I'm just following these shapes as best that I can. And I could see that the shape on the right, he's a lot bigger than the shape on the left. And so as they're running, all of a sudden, they make a fatal error. They split up. And I've seen the Discovery Channel. I know what to do. You leave the big one. You call the weak. And you go after the little one. And so I'm running as hard as I can. And I'm going after the little guy. And uh, he's running through this field that's got these the bunch of tall grass. And so he's having to cut a trail through this grass. And so he's going a lot slower than me. And I'm getting pretty proud because I'm in my 40s. He's like a middle schooler and I'm gaining on this guy. But then I'm sitting there thinking, what am I actually going to do when I get to him? Because I'm just thinking, I, I just want to have some fun with this kid. I don't want to hurt him. So I'm just thinking, I don't want to tackle him when I get there. So in my mind, this is how I kind of played it out as I was running. What I'm going to do is get as close to him as I can. And I'm just going to reach out and I'm going to grab his shoulders and then just stop him from running. It, it made perfect sense in my mind as I played it out. But what happened in the dark, again, you don't have the depth perception that you have in the daytime. So I think that I'm close enough to him to reach out and grab his shoulders. So I kind of lunge for his shoulders and I completely miss. And I'm starting to fall face down into the ground while I stick my arms out to stop me. And as luck would have it, my arms hit him in the back of the legs as he's running and knock him to the ground. And I'm thinking, I don't want him to get away now. So as fast as I can, I just crawl over on him and I get on top of him and I roll him over. And what I really wanted to do, what I really wanted to do was just say something kind and fun to him. But when you're 40 years old and you've been running through the neighborhood as hard as you can, you can hardly even breathe. And so instead of saying something like, hey, what are you doing? It came out something like, who are you? And all I remember was in this poor whiny cry voice. My name is Andrew and my brother made me do it. <laughs> and then I'm just feeling bad because it's like this kid is completely scared now. And so what I tried to do is I thought I'm just going to get up and catch my breath and then I can talk with him. Well, I get up and well, I'm just, you know, trying to catch my breath out in the middle of the field. He's gone. I never had the opportunity to talk with him <laughs> and tell him I was just trying to have some fun with you. This is not how you cojourn with people in your neighborhood. This is not how you come alongside people. I'm just saying. The reason I tell that, and it's, and it's fun to tell, but the reason I tell that is because I want to highlight something about us as people, and that's this. We love stories. We love to hear stories. We love to tell stories. We love to read stories because we can just kind of imagine ourselves. We can put ourselves in those pictures and they can capture our heart and our imagination. And when we look at the life and the teachings of Jesus, even oftentimes when he wanted to talk about things that were deeply spiritual, deeply profound, and even deeply theological, oftentimes he would tell a story to help people capture what it was that he wanted to talk about. And if you were here last week, we talked about the idea of telling God's story. If we want to be a co-journer with people, we have got to become excellent at being able to tell this 
large story of God, of what he's doing from creation to this time of restoration at the end of time, and all that he's doing in between. We need to be people who can tell God's story because the gospel and the message of God, it's not just propositional truths that we need to believe. There are propositional truths that need to be believed and understood, but it's a larger story, a larger drama that's playing out in the world, and we've gotta become people who can tell that story. That's what we talked about last week. But this week, we're talking about what happens when our story, the story of our life, intersects with that God story. Things radically change. Regardless of what we think about our own life or our own story, when our life intersects the story of God, our story becomes amazing. And we become part of that larger story. And whether you believe it or not, that makes your story special and amazing. And that's what we wanna talk about today. How can God use our story, our story of what he's done in our life to help other people come to know him, help other people come to understand what he's like and what he's done for us? The, the most difficult part of this sermon for me was trying to pick which example in scripture would be the best one to illustrate this because the scripture is just littered with these stories of people that have these amazing encounters with God and then God uses them telling their story to other people to be a great influence for them. Ultimately, I chose the, the story from John chapter four of the Samaritan woman, because I think this is one of those stories that's one of the greatest pictures of the greatest cojourner of all time, walking alongside someone on their spiritual journey. To kind of set up where we're at in the story, Jesus is on his way from the south in Judea and he's heading up to the north in Galilee. And that means right in the center is this group of people called the Samaritans in an area called Samaria. And now most good rabbis, they wouldn't even want to walk through Samaria. What they would do is go out of their way to go around just to not have any contact with the Samaritan people because Jews don't associate with Samaritan. But that's not what our God is like, is he? He goes right into the people that need him the most. He goes right through Samaria. And this is where we pick up the story in John chapter four, starting in verse seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Again, you can see that Jesus has crossed like every social barrier that there is. A man talking to a woman, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi talking to a woman, a Jewish rabbi talking to a Samaritan. But it just shows us the heart of our God. His kingdom is radically inclusive. In God's mind of the kingdom, there's no one who is outside of his reach. He wants everyone to be a part of his kingdom. But Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, she said, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water 
so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You see the picture of what's happening here. Jesus is having this explorer conversation with the woman at the well, but this conversation is actually taking place on two levels. She's talking about water, and all she's talking about is the physical water, the physical water that will quench her physical thirst. But Jesus has something much deeper in mind. He's talking about spiritual water, living water, because he wants not to just meet physical needs, he wants to meet her deepest spiritual need. He wants to be that living water that would bring life to her soul. Water will bring life to her body, but Jesus can bring life to her soul. He wants to meet her deepest needs. And this is what is true of all of us, whether we know Christ or not. We have fundamental needs in our life that we're going to seek to have met in one way or another. We have needs for acceptance. We have needs for significance. We have needs for intimacy and love. But the question is, what are we going to do? What are we going to chase to try to meet those needs? Are we going to try to have those needs met the way God intended through him, through the God of the universe? Or are we going to chase the things of this world? And friends, when we chase the things of this world to meet those needs that only God is meant to meet, we're always left holding the bag. We're always left feeling empty. But Jesus, again, he wants to take this conversation deeper to the next level. It's not just about physical needs. It's about what are you chasing to meet the deepest needs in your life? And he starts to put his finger on it as we continue in the conversation with this woman. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. Now I'm imagining as he asked that question, there are a lot of things that are running through her mind as she thinks through her past. And maybe what are the things that I've chased in this life to try to bring me fulfillment that aren't God? This is what she says to him. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have said, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. She realizes that this is not just an ordinary person that has bumped into her on this day. This is someone important. But then it's interesting where she takes the conversation. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. It's interesting. She takes the conversation and she tries to make it about religion. She's like, ah, I see, this is a prophet. So the question that I need to ask then is, okay, where do you want me to worship? What is the religion that I'm supposed to follow? My forefathers said this, I hear that you say that. Where is it that I'm supposed to go? I'm imagining if this conversation took place today, her question would be, oh, I get it. You're a religious person. Where do you want me to go to church? What's the denomination that I need to be a part of? But Jesus makes it very clear. It is not about religion. It is not about church. It's about me. It's about me and what I can do in your life. And this is what Jesus said after that. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming 
When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. You see, Jesus says it's not about where you worship. It's not about how you worship. It's about who you worship. It's about what you go to for life. That's what makes all the difference. It's not about place. It's about a person. It's about me. And you know what? It starts to break things loose in her life. She starts to get it. She starts to understand what it is, who he is, and what he's done for her. And you know how we know that she gets it? Because we see her response. What is her response to this life-changing encounter with Jesus? She wants to tell others about what he's done in her life. This is where the text takes us. Then, leaving her water jar, she just drops what she's doing. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man. Remember that. Underline that in your mind. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way to him. Isn't it great what she did? She didn't say, come be a part of a religion that I just found out about. She didn't say, I realize that I've been living on kind of the outskirts of morality and I need to make my life more moral. Come be more moral with me. She didn't say, come join a church. She said, come and see a man. Come and see a man that told me everything that I ever did. And she brought people to Jesus. Her story of this encounter with Jesus compelled her to want to tell others about his impact in her life. And what was the result? People came to him. Many of the Samaritans came from the town Many of, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, but now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. You see this beautiful picture that God used this broken woman's story of her encounter with Jesus and her willingness to go back to people that she loved and cared about and talk with them about this encounter with Jesus. It pointed them to the reality of who he was. It wasn't just her story. They said, now we've met him. She didn't say, come and be a part of a religion. She said, come and see a man. And then he began to change the life of others around them. Great influence. God wants to use our faith stories to help us have an influence in the lives of people around us. And you've heard us say this many times around here recently. We talk about we want to be people that declare the gospel and we display the gospel. When we say declare the gospel, we want to be people again that are excellent at telling the story of God, that we understand that and we can explain it to people in words that they can understand. We want to declare the gospel, but we want to be people who display the gospel. That people actually see that there is life change found in an encounter with Jesus. And we can tell people about how we've encountered him and the life change that he's brought to us. Because frankly, people are wondering, does Christianity, does faith, does it make a difference? Does it really make a difference in your life? It's like this story that I heard about. This woman put an ad on the internet. And this is what the ad roughly said. I've lost 50 pounds and I'm getting rid of all of my old clothes. They're in great condition. Please call. She was 
inundated with phone calls. Nobody wanted her clothes. What did they want? They wanted to know, how in the world did you lose 50 pounds? That's what I want to know. What made a difference in your life? Because if we've come to know Jesus, one thing that we do know is that there is going to be a difference in our life. We are going to change when we encounter him. But let me say this as clearly as I can. We don't come to faith in Jesus because of what he's going to do in our life, because of the changes that he's going to bring. We come to Jesus for the sole reason that he is God, he is the Lord, and we bow our knee to him and we worship him because of who he is not because of what he may do for us. Because at the end of time, every knee is gonna bow, every tongue is gonna confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the praise of the Father. That is what is absolutely true. We don't come to him because of what he's gonna do for us. We come to him because of who he is. But friends, the truth is when we truly come to him, our lives will always change. There will always be a difference in our life. And what we want to become excellent at is being able to talk with people about how we met Christ and how we brought about those changes in our lives. And that leads us to the practical part of what we want to talk about today is how do I tell my faith story? How do I tell that story of how Jesus intersected my life and brought those changes? I'm glad you asked that because that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to give you just some very practical do's and don'ts as you think about telling your story. And the first one is, don't feel pressure to have a dramatic story. I think about all my years of working with college students and helping them prepare to tell their story. And oh, so many times, the first thing out of their mouth is, I don't have a good story. I don't have a good story. I've never killed anyone. I've never sold crack to middle schoolers. My story, it just, it's just not exciting. It's not going to move people. And I think what happens is we kind of get this picture of like the dramatic story of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, where this is a guy who's shaking his fist at God, persecuting Jesus, persecuting his people, putting them to death. And we see this picture of him riding his horse to Damascus, and God grabs him by the shirt, throws him down on the ground, blinds him, and then takes him somewhere, heals him from his blindness. And I just think, I would probably repent as well if all those things had happened to me. But we look at this and we just say, now that's a testimony right there. That's how God needs to work if it's gonna be impactful in people's lives. Now granted, that was a very dramatic expression of God's grace in someone's life. Very real and very dramatic. But you know, it isn't like always like that with every person. Sometimes our stories are very different. And I'm really thankful that if we move from Acts chapter 9 and we just flip a couple pages over to Acts chapter 16, we see another picture of how God pours out his grace into the life of another person. And that person is Lydia. This is what the scripture says about her. It says, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. A very different story, isn't it? 
Paul didn't drag Lydia drunk out of a brothel and save her from a life of sin. This was someone who was already God-oriented in her life. He finds her at a prayer meeting seeking God, but she just didn't understand all of who God was and all of the gospel message, but she heard the gospel message and probably the most undramatic picture in scripture, it says that God just simply opened her heart and she believed and her life was completely changed that day. For some people, that's their story. Some of us have a Paul type experience in our life, but for some of us, it's a Lydia type experience. We might not even remember exactly how that happened. Our life was kind of God oriented and we start, started moving toward him and now we've just kept moving toward him, but he's continually changing my life. The common denominator in the story is that God shows up, he opens our heart and he changes our life. We don't need to have a dramatic story to have an effective story to tell. And quite honestly, some people might not even relate to the dramatic story because that's not the story of their life. Their life has been more like Lydia. Just tell the story that God has given you. It doesn't have to be dramatic. Number two is don't play the weird card. And this is what I mean by that. Probably for all of us, we've had, if you've walked with Christ for any time, you've had certain experiences with God that are just kind of out of the, out of the ordinary, supernatural, and, and just odd in certain ways. Just because we have those experiences, don't make those the centerpiece of your story. Don't make them the loudest thing that you tell when you tell your story about God working in your life. Because quite honestly, the way God works in our life in most times is just very, very normal. Just simple walking with him and obedience toward him. There's not always these weird things going on. So don't try to make your story a little bit more sexy by adding these weird inner counters that you have with God. I'm not trying to push those, minimize those things. Those are incredible experience of God. Just don't make them the centerpiece of your story. The third thing, don't be long-winded. Be very concise. You don't need a lot of time to tell people your before and after story of how God has changed your life. Really, in the matter of two or three minutes, you should be able to tell the, the big sweeping story of how God has changed you. When you start to tell your story, people's clothes should still be in style by the time that you finish. Don't make it this ongoing monologue that starts with, well, I was born, and then, and then, and then, up to the current day. Just tell the big picture story of what God has done in your life. Don't come across, number four, don't come across with an air of pride or superiority. There's times that I've heard people talk about what God has done in their life, almost like they're talking down to the people that they're talking to. Like, because I'm a child of God, I've found this relationship with God that somehow I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you in some way. Nothing could be a bigger turnoff as you tell your story. And quite honestly, it's, it just tells me and would tell others that you don't really understand the gospel that you're proclaiming. Because when we truly come to know Christ, we understand that we did not do one stinking thing to deserve God's grace being poured out in our life. It's only because of the result of God's amazing kindness that we've come to know him. When we truly know Christ, the things that are gonna flow out of our life is humility, gratitude, and compassion for people because we know that we don't deserve it. Our mindset should be, I am just a beggar telling another beggar how to find bread. There isn't anything great about us. There's great things about God and it's great that he's intersected our life, but we never look at people as if we're better than them. A fifth thing is don't use Christian or churchy words. 
Because oftentimes when we use words that maybe we throw around in these environments, that they just don't translate well in people's lives and they just put up barriers and make it feel like I, I don't even understand what you're talking about. And when I say churchy words or loaded words, these are, these are the kind of things that I'm talking about. Words like born again, redemption, even words like sin and savior don't always make sense to people. Even words like heaven and hell don't make sense to people. Words like atonement can be very confusing. Now I'm not saying that when we tell our story we don't use these ideas, but if we use these ideas in our story, explain them in a way that someone could understand. Don't say, well, I became a born again Christian. Just say, God gave me a clean slate in my life and now he's beginning to transform me from the inside out. It's a different way to talk about the idea of what it means to be born again without saying the word born again that has all the baggage associated with it. And even a word like sin needs to be explained because it, there's just lots of things that go off in lots of people's minds. But you could say something simply like, I was just simply doing what I wanted to do instead of what God wanted me to do. Use words that they can understand. Number six is focus on Jesus. Don't focus on church or denominations. As I think about my interactions with people, uh, there's so much resistance to organized religions and they have bad experiences sometimes of the church but people are not often resistant to talking about Jesus. Even in our culture today, there's lots of respect for the person of Jesus. Don't make it about religion, don't make it about church, make it about Jesus. Let's just follow the example of the Samaritan woman. She didn't invite anybody to anything religious, she just said, come and see a man. Let's introduce someone to our greatest friend in life that's changing us, and that's Jesus. Number seven is when you write your story out, just write the way you speak. Make it yours, make it very natural. Number eight is practice this over and over until it becomes natural. Until it's just something that you could just tell in the context of a story. It's not something that is so foreign to you talking about that you don't really know how to say it. Practice it over and over. And the last thing I'm gonna say it once again, be brief, baby, be brief. Shoot for three minutes at the most. You don't have to have a long monologue. Be very concise about the way God has worked in your life. To help us get a picture of what it might look like to prepare and share our testimony, I asked my friend Peter to do this for us. And I asked him to do it in a way that was kind of challenging, though. I asked him to do it into a camera and in a public place. But he did a, an amazing job with it. But I want you to turn your attention to the screens and watch my friend Peter. I just feel like I, um, I want to share with you just a little bit about um, where I've come spiritually and where I'm at today. To start from the very beginning, I guess I remember my mom always sharing with me when I left the house before I opened the door, remember Pete, you represent the family. And what I got out of that in growing up was all that mattered was what was going on on the outside. I remember being invited to a campus ministry event with some friends and I remember sitting down and I remember watching these people have just this intimate relationship and intimate experience with, with Jesus um, through just their worship and through their actions. I just remember um, wanting that, desiring that, um, but also, you know, what, is that, what does that look like? You know, what does that 
what does that mean to, uh, you know for me and what does God think of just the junk going on in my inside I mean I remember I had lived most of my life in kind of this you know outward facade of having it all together and it was when I realized that this God was didn't care about what was on you know what was going on on the outside but only cared about what was going on the inside um, and I guess having a relationship with a God that cared you know, about the whole me, about the good stuff and the junk that was going on. It just made me want to press into him even more. It made me want to, um, you know, work, th work that sin out of my life, but, um, but not in a, in a fashion of guilt, um, but just in a response of he loved me so much to, to care about the, the, the inward stuff that I want to express that out back to him. And it's been exciting. He's transforming my heart inward out, and it's just been an amazing adventure uh, to see that a that transformation and b just that just that that opportunity to say yes and and, and follow him and and um, I'm just really excited about the journey that's ahead. Okay, journey. Here's where the rubber meets the road for us. Here's your assignment. If you've got your cheat sheet there, what we want you to do this week is we want you to take some time to sit down and write out your story. And here's the parameters we want to give you for that. We want you to write out your story in 400 words or less. Because 400 words you can communicate in about two and a half to three minutes. And there's an outline we want to give you to follow simply before, how, and after. What was my life like before I met Christ? The how piece is how did Christ intersect my life? What were some of the circumstances surrounding that? And then the after, after I surrendered my life to Christ, what are some of the things that have been true since then? And how is God changing me in the midst of that? We want to ask you to write that out in 400 words or less. And this is what we want to ask you to do as well. If you would take your story, if you'd be so bold, we want you to email it in to my story at journeyweb.net. And this is what we want to do with you. We've got a team of people uh, around here that want to help you sharpen your story, to help you sharpen it in a way so that you can become very effective at communicating your God story of how God, the big story of God, has intersected your life. And we want to help you do that. So if you would just send that in, we'll give you feedback on that. And we can work, work with you on it until you get it to a place where you just really feel comfortable and that this would be something that I'd want to share with my friends. And let me just tell you, I think that, there, that there's an, an outward aspect, a benefit of how you can use this in the lives of other people. But let me just tell you, I think that there's going to be an incredible inward aspect of taking the time to remember your story as well. Is that we so often, we just forget about where God has brought us from. And just this process of sitting down and thinking about what God has done to bring me to faith in him is gonna be something that's gonna encourage your heart as well because we are incredible, forgetful people. And God knew that we were gonna be incredibly forgetful people and we were gonna get on the hamster wheel of life and just start running and running and running and forget about the most important things that he's done. So one of the things that God has done to even help us remember besides telling our story is the Lord's Supper or communion. And if you can just put your things aside right now, we're going to prepare our hearts to take communion this morning.
on that last meal that Jesus had with his closest followers, during that meal, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after the meal, he lifted up the cup to heaven and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. The broken bread reminding us of the broken body, the cup reminding us of the spilled blood of Christ that purchased for us a salvation that we couldn't accomplish on our own. And he asked us to remember that. But then there's an interesting thing that the gospel writer Matthew talks about at the end of that section. Again, as Jesus is holding up the cup, he says to his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. An incredible foreshadowing of something that we read about in the book of Revelation. And we hear it there, and it's called the wedding feast of the Lamb, where Jesus, as the groom, is waiting for his bride, the church. All of those who throughout time are going to bow their knee to him and come into a relationship with him. He's there. The banquet has been set. The plates have been set. The wine has been poured. But Jesus holds his cup, and he said, I'm not going to drink it until I will drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. And we've got to ask the question, why does Jesus wait? What is he waiting for there in heaven? He's waiting there in heaven because he wants there to be more people at the banquet. He longs for there to be more people at that banquet. And what he's asked us, church, those of us that are followers of Christ, he said, your job is to make invitations to this banquet, this future banquet you're the ones to invite people to be a part of that with us. So as we take communion today, let's remember the past. Let's remember what Jesus has done for us. But let's also remember the future. Let's remember what's prepared for us. And that Jesus has asked us to make invitations to the greatest party that's ever going to be thrown. And around here at Journey, we practice an open communion. You don't need to be a member or a partner of our church here. But the Bible's really clear that communion is reserved for those people who have given their lives to Christ, who have entered into that kind of personal relationship with Him. And so we want to ask you during this time to even self-facilitate your interaction with God. Use this time to remember what He's done for you. Use this time to praise Him and thank Him for who He is. Maybe there's some business that you need to do with God. There's some sin that you need to confess and get right with Him before you take communion. Whatever it is that you need to do, use this time to press in with the Father before you take communion. And just facilitate it whenever you'd be ready. You can just use these stations that are positioned around the room and just take a piece of bread or a cracker and dip it into the juice or the wine. And let's remember together.